Uh, we, uh, we are here, the, this panel, to, uh, to talk about privacy and security law um, and uh, you know, how we each got into it. Uh, we each have quite different uh, jobs and very different backgrounds that got us here. So we actually thought that the best way to start would be with a round of introductions. So I'll go last. Um, let me uh, call on Peter, uh, if you don't mind uh, starting us out. Explain to us sort of how did you, uh, what do you do? But also how did you get into this? What's your background and, and what do you do in privacy? Terrific. Um, thank you, Seth. Thank you to the speakers, and, and thank you particularly to our participants. Um, it's, a, it's, um, it's wonderful to see that the webinars at the BBA have really picked up uh, the way that they have through this. Um, so my name is Peter Lefkowitz. I'm the Chief Privacy and Digital Risk Officer at Citrix. Um, the, the, the job is interestingly different from what privacy jobs were in the past. Um, very involved in our security portfolio of our products or services, our IT infrastructure, um, and, and increasingly involved in how we're presenting publicly um, the face of privacy and security in our products, um, and, and then a fair bit of public policy in Washington, D.C. Um, and in Europe. Um, the way I got into the field was in 2001-2002, I was a lawyer at Oracle, and I was in spending an increasing amount of time on support and on early days of outsourcing. Everybody was starting to figure out that you could actually outsource large chunks, not just of the consulting function, but actually of storage and management. And as we got deeper into this, um, dear, dear friend of mine, um, and really one of the lions, historically, of the privacy community, a man by the name of Joe Oladef, was the chief privacy officer at Oracle. And he came to me and he said, you know, we've been doing public policy in this area, but now we need to think about doing it operationally. And um, nobody was really doing that. He had this thought along with a few other privacy officers at Microsoft, at Lilly, um, this, this beginning of a movement of operational privacy. Um, and we took a bit of a flyer. Um, I did it as a, as a solo privacy office um, at Oracle for a year. Had a couple more guys join me. By 2013, we were a team of 10. Um, so, so I was, was fortunate to get in on the ground floor, um, really, of thinking about what operational privacy meant in-house. Uh, in Thank you, Peter. Krieta? Um, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you to my uh, esteemed, esteemed co-panelists for having me join you today. Um, my name is Krieta Bowens-Jones. I am Associate General Counsel at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, um, and I've been there uh, for about 10 years. Uh, when I graduated from law school, I went to work at a law firm, and I was in the healthcare section there, and most of my work was on the transactional side, so I did a lot of work on um, joint ventures and asset purchase deals for healthcare organizations, some medical tourism work and some te telemedicine work and some FDA work, so a little bit of everything. Um, and medical privacy came up on occasion, but usually in the context of patient care matters that we were advising on. Um, when I left the firm, I joined Dana-Farber as a healthcare generalist versus an attorney who um, specializes in a specific area such as labor and employment or IP. Um, and when you go to work for a hospital in-house, it's a relatively small team usually. Um, our team is certainly relatively small at Dana-Farber. 
and you're slotted in to fill a need and there was a, a gap on the privacy and security side. Um, so I started advising and supporting our information security and privacy team and advising on privacy and security matters as part of my day-to-day -day work. And over time, it slowly became the most sig significant substantive part of my practice. Um, so my day-to-day -day work now includes many things. I advise on patient care matters, operations, um, our health information management and community programs. Um, but uh, privacy and security is really the um, bread and butter of my practice now. So that's how I came to be doing what I'm doing. Great, Adam? Uh, yes, thanks everyone for, uh, for listening in, joining us uh, for this. So um, my name is Adam Bookbinder. I'm a partner at uh, Holland and Knight. But um, I've been doing that for about the last two and a half years or so. But um, I got into working in cybersecurity and privacy uh, through uh, a different route. Um, I was a prosecutor. Um, I had started out actually as an associate litigation associate at a big firm in Boston. I became a, uh, a state and then uh, a state prosecutor and then an assistant U.S. attorney in Boston. Um, in uh, 1999 and was doing white collar, uh, you know, economic crimes uh, prosecution. And uh, periodically, every once in a while, there would come along a case that was what people then called computer crime, um, which could be almost anything involving a computer and committing some kind of a crime. And um, there wasn't anyone who was particularly, uh, you know, focused on that kind of work. And so those of us in the white collar group started uh, picking up those cases from time to time, and I did more of them because I was just interested in the technology, in the issues of, uh, the, that are now what we think of as cybersecurity, but no one used that term back then. And um, in 2004, the U.S. Attorney's Office created a cyber crime unit, and uh, I decided to uh, focus in that uh, in that space. At that point, it wasn't clear how much of this cyber crime there really was going to be, or, um, but uh, but we started, um, and uh, and there ended up being more and more, and that's been a focus of mine since really, uh, you know, 2002, but increasingly after 2004. Um, I ended up as the chief of the cybercrime unit for my last four years in the office um, doing, um, and we would do investigations and prosecutions of all kinds of things that you could consider to be cybercrime, uh, hacking uh, aimed at, uh, you know, uh, data breaches, uh, stealing consumer data, hacking cases aimed at being uh, destructive, network attacks, um, uh, computer crime or other kinds of crime aimed at stealing intellectual property, um, trade secrets and things like that. Um, and uh, increasingly uh, in the last uh, five, eight years or so, nation state uh, based uh, cyber crime. And um, since I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, I've now been working with companies and uh, schools and hospitals, other institutions who are either the victim of uh, cybersecurity incidents or are uh, working to try to prevent themselves from becoming victims by increasing their protections. And on the data privacy side, again, uh, institutions that have had incidents or are working to comply with changing state and federal law um, and to uh, you know, proactively set themselves up or in some cases that are, uh, that are being, uh, you know, that are on one side or the other of litigation related to either cybersecurity or privacy, data privacy issues. All right, thanks, Adam. So 
Um, that uh, leaves me. So uh, my name is Seth Berman. I'm a partner at Nutter, McLennan and Fish uh, here in Boston. Um, so uh, I, uh, my career in some ways is similar to Adam's, although I've taken some zigs and zags that are a little different from his. Um, I also started as a prosecutor um, and uh, originally got into uh, what was then uh, the early, early days of computer crime prosecutions when I was in the Manhattan DA's office in the late 90s. Um, and uh, became one of their computer crime prosecutors. At the time, the biggest um, computer-like crime was actually cell phone cloning, um, which gives you a sense of how very long ago this was. Um, and, uh, you know, it was sort of a sideline interest of mine because no one else there was that interested in the technology. I did that for a couple of years, um, left that, went into private practice here in Boston, and then uh, later joined Adam at the U.S. Attorney's Office and ultimately, uh, when the Computer Crimes Unit was founded, um, Adam and I were two of the three folks who started it. Um, and we overlapped for a while. Unlike Adam, I left the office after a few years of doing that. Um, and, uh, and I actually went to a consulting firm, um, which specialized in essentially dealing with digital forensics issues for lawyers. This was in, um, let's see, I think it was in 2007 um, that I started there. Um, even that, which is you know only 13 years ago, is a was a hugely different environment around privacy and security issues. The reason actually that I didn't go straight to a law firm at the time is that there really wasn't in the context of a law firm at that time a specialty in privacy and security law. There just wasn't enough business for one person to do that full time, which now seems laughable, but was very true back then. And our role as outside consultants essentially was working for lawyers who were essentially trying to figure out, you know, in our case, we have this technology issue. We don't really understand either the technology or a lot of times even the law around that technology. And we would help our clients, both our lawyer clients and the ultimate clients, the companies uh, kind of uh, unravel that. So I worked at um, that consulting company for 10 years. Um, a few of them here, I then moved to London and opened their London office. I ultimately opened offices for them across Europe and Asia and basically was doing privacy and security consulting in all of those environments um, through um, uh, until, let's see, about 2000, and, uh, when was it, 12 or 14. And uh, I, uh, I did that for a while, I did for 10 years actually, so, and then um, ultimately came back to Boston, decided that uh, you know, the law at that point had obviously evolved to a point where there was this specialty, it was time for me to go back to being a lawyer full time um, and that's when I joined Nutter. So um, I now do the same sorts of uh, work that I think Adam does. Uh, I work with clients either who've had an incident and are attempting to kind of address a breach, figure out what their legal obligations are, how bad is it, things like that. Um, and I do a fair amount of work with clients trying either on a security side or on the privacy side to sort of figure out proactively what should we be doing um, to address that. So that actually leads to our next topic, which is um, I'm going to sort of ask each of you, we talk about this, uh, this session is about privacy and security, but the reality is privacy and security are not quite the same thing. Um, and uh, I guess for within each of your jobs, it would be interesting to talk a little bit about how much is, uh, is privacy and how much is security and what do you think is the difference between those two in the context of where you work. Krieta, I think if I may, I'll start with you. Um, sure. So, um... You know, when I think of privacy, you know, working at a hospital, we think primarily of medical privacy and, the, you know, the practice of, you know, protecting and securely maintaining patient information. So 
confidential data and then uh, what's defined as protected health information. And we certainly want to think, we certainly think about um, privacy on the employee side, su subject to other state and federal regulations. But, you know, for us as a hospital, it's, it's primarily about patients. Um, and we think about cybersecurity, and I would love, you know, again, to hear the answers that my, my um, co-panelists give, because um, uh, I think they're obviously much stronger on the, or have much more of a connection to the cybersecurity work than I do. Um, but I think about the practices for protecting networks and systems and the tools that are put in place for accessing the sensitive data that we might maintain. So for me, 90% of my practice, I would say, is on the privacy side. That seems to be shifting and, and decreasing and going more towards cybersecurity, but still the lion's share of what I deal with and manage on a day-to-day -day basis is on the privacy side. And when I say privacy, I talk primarily about, you know, HIPAA and the privacy, privacy rule compliance. You know, we want to make sure there's compliance in our contracting, in our policies and procedures. Um, we want to make sure that minimum necessary standards um, under the privacy rule are accounted for in our business strategies. And we, of course, think about it in our medical record management. Um, my work on the cybersecurity side is a little bit, is much more limited, excuse me, um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I'm mostly focusing on cybersecurity with respect to relationships we have with vendors and who will have access to our confidential information, our, our patient information, um, ensuring that there are systems in place to protect the data um, that they would have access to and that there are sufficient safeguards um, in place that match the services that are being provided. And so with every vendor that we work with, we under, have them undergo a written inf information security assessment. Um, so, for example, when I say match the services they're providing, if we have a vendor that's providing maintenance or support to a particular system, you know, what kind of mechanisms are in place to limit the data that they need in order to provide those maintenance and support services? And what are the mechanisms to ensure that that information is destroyed um, once those maintenance and support activities have ended? Um, more recently, we've started to have a lot of discussions around cybersecurity. Um, security with Zoom and Doximity and other tools that providers are using to deliver care remotely. Um, and I also advise on information security, our information security on systems matters, but mostly in the context of new site development. Um, when we open up a new um, satellite location and have to put systems in place to connect that site to our, to our main network, but also make sure it's uh, appropriately established to be outward facing. Um, and also changes to our data center operations and new informatics programs and models um, when those come up. But um, again, on my world, most of the work does tend to be on privacy, um, although I am, as I said, starting to see a little bit more of a shift to the security world. Krieta, um, before you uh, leave off, I think one thing that might be helpful is you referenced HIPAA. Um, it might not be a terrible idea to sort of explain to people what HIPAA is and sort of who it covers and um, because I think that's much more part of your practice or as a percent, much higher percent of your practice than the rest of us. So. Right. Oh, thank you, Seth. That's a, a good reminder. Sure. So um, HIPAA stands for the, um, uh, so it's the Health Insurance uh, Portability and Accountab Portability and Accountability Act. And uh, that is the main privacy um, rule um, governing medical privacy for certain organizations that are defined as covered entities and, and, and their business associates. 
And so when um, I talk about HIPAA, I really do talk about the, the primary law that we, that we um, use and refer to when we talk about managing uh, patient data, because that um, the, the HIPAA is broken up into, there are subparts, there's a privacy rule, security rule, um, a couple of other rules. Um, the privacy rule really does outline how you can use, disclose, store, transfer, patient information. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, a covered entity such as you know, a hospital like Dana-Farber um, really does, that, that's, the, that's what we look to for guidance as we uh, focus our operations towards patients and how we um, manage and maintain their health information on a day-to-day -day basis. So. Thanks. I think one of the things that you'll hear a fair amount about as we go through this, uh, this uh, webinar is that the, um, uh, you know, the, there isn't in America one universal privacy rule um, that we all follow. So for the healthcare industry uh, is regulated primarily by HIPAA, which impacts hospitals, doctors, and some others who are involved in the healthcare industry, but doesn't impact non-healthcare industry folks. Um, there are other privacy laws that cover them. Other countries have taken a different approach, um, which I'm sure Peter can talk about when we get to his section. Um, that are much more universal and sort of are meant to apply to everyone, but that's not where we are. So uh, actually with that, Peter, do you want to step in and maybe talk a little bit about that and some other things you deal with? Sure. Um, thank you, Seth. So look, picking up where, where Creata left off, I, I think that we think of privacy as the regulation of personal information. What, what I've increasingly found over time, what we're seeing in the services that we handle and the systems we handle is that there's no such thing as a system or a service that's just personal information, right? There are systems and personal information is part of them. And that has two implications. One is that privacy law affects just about every system and just about everything that we're doing. Um, but also on the flip side, that privacy gets subsumed in a larger discussion about privacy, cybersecurity, data governance, data management, and, and, and forward-looking business. And so what I'm finding increasingly is, yes, we're very focused on privacy and privacy compliance, but that it fits into a larger structure of what is your product, what is your service, who is your vendor, what are they doing? How sensitive overall is the data that they're handling? How much of that is personal information that may be subject to HIPAA or GLB or European rules or Turkish rules or Hong Kong rules where you have to have some, some measure of expertise? Um, but, but increasingly, I think, at least in my practice, privacy is becoming part of a larger look at how technology works and how people work with technology. Um, for all of the complaining that all of us did about the GDPR as it was being written, as it was being implemented, if you look at the bulk of the GDPR, if you look at articles 25 to 39, 29 to 25 to 40, the whole accountability section of GDPR, it's about just that. It's about knowing what data you collect, knowing how your systems are, are structured, securing those systems, knowing data flows with vendors, with customers, with individuals, where people and systems fit together. 
Um, and, and I'm finding that the way that the, the profession is bending um, is in that direction of sort of thinking about and looking at accountability. Um, I know that in areas like HIPAA, like Creta's area, there are very specific, very regulated privacy requirements you have to be sensitive to, right? And if you look at Japanese law, if you look at European law, there are specific things that you need to do around data transfer. And yet, and yet I think that even in those areas, we're winding up now with a little bit more of a globally blended look at how data moves, how data functions, and how you balance privacy, security, use, restrictions on access and authentication, reuse, and the like. Um, so so to, to net it out, um, from a practical perspective, where I'm spending most of my time now is in devising structures, devising systems, devising teams to think about what does the next product we're going to release collect? How does it use it? Where is it stored? How is it integrated with other data? Does that help us do our job better? What vendors do we have and how do we disclose them? What do we need to put up on our websites? Should we advertise to this issue or should we be more circumscribed about it? And then from a public policy perspective, making sure that, um, and I'm, I'm speaking here specifically for myself and my company, but I think that a lot of companies feel this way, making sure that as privacy laws are developed, that they have a holistic view, that they think about standards development, cross-industry standards, um, and the ability to replicate globally the things that we're doing in New York, in Massachusetts, in California, um, or in Belgium or Singapore, um, because that's the only way we're going to be able to, to function. Um, so that's, I know that's a, that's a pretty broad swath, but I just thought what, what Creta said about the two areas um, coming together is really um, holding very true in my practice. Adam? Sure. So, uh, you know, on the question of the difference between privacy and cybersecurity, um, they are different. They're certainly very related. Um, I would think of them as a Venn diagram with two circles that have a fair amount of overlap, but not entirely. So, for example, you know, you could have us, you know, so your classic cybersecurity incident, uh, I guess, would be a data breach, right? Someone hacks into your network and they steal uh, you know, uh, credit card data or PII of your customers, right? That is a cybersecurity incident and a data privacy incident, no question. Both are going to be implicated there. But you can have a cybersecurity incident that doesn't implicate uh, data privacy in the way we generally think of it. For example, um, you could have a, uh, you know, a network, an attack on a uh, company or hospital, some kind of institution's network that isn't designed to steal anything. It's a, a, a you know a DDoS attack, what we call it, a distributed denial of service, meant to overwhelm a website or some other network and just shut it down, stop it from functioning. That doesn't um, generally implicate data privacy, but it's certainly cybersecurity incident. Um, or you could have uh, a hack into a network that is not aimed at stealing. Uh, customer data or employee data, but taking a very targeted piece of um, intellectual property, like a trade secret. 
So that is um, that is a, a theft of, um, of property, but generally, again, we don't think of that as a data privacy situation. It's, a, it's an IP incident, maybe theft of trade secrets, certainly cybersecurity, but not really data privacy. Um, or you can have a data privacy incident that doesn't implicate cybersecurity at all. For example, um, you could have, you know, a these were more common in the past, but you still have them now. Um, you know, a stack of uh, paper bills that get lost or or stolen. Um, and I'm sure Krieta's had this in her days. Uh, you know, where people's personal information, PHI, medical information, uh, are are compromised, accessed. Um, obviously, it's a data privacy situation. It doesn't involve cybersecurity. Or um, you can have a situation where um, for example, a, a website or some other um, technical um, uh, forum is, is sharing data, uh, not because that data was hacked into or stolen, but through, um, through maybe their social media or advertising or things like that. They're doing that knowingly and voluntarily, but some people, plaintiffs, lawyers, individuals, may think that that violates their data privacy. Maybe it's sharing data with Facebook or, you know, or LinkedIn or something like that in a way that violates their privacy. It isn't a, it isn't a cybersecurity issue classically because it's, it's knowing and voluntary. So um, while there is a lot of overlap, these two things are somewhat different. And as to the question of, sort of my practice, uh, it really is, is both of those things. Um, and it varies just from time to time, depending on the particular matter or case I, I happen to be spending more time on than others uh, as to which one uh, seems to be um, predominant at any given time. Thank you, Adam. So, you know, for from my point of view, I, I um, would define the two slightly differently than the way Adam did, although it gets to the same point, which is, to me, a security problem is essentially, uh, you know, if a company is entrusted with certain kinds of data, it is their duty to make sure that someone who's not supposed to have that data doesn't get it. And that's really a core security issue. A privacy issue um, is really focused on something a little bit different, which is a company is entrusted with someone's data. Are they using that data in a way that is appropriate? Um, some of that is about security, so losing it obviously is inappropriate. But some of that has nothing to do with security and is about how they're using it themselves. So, you know, for example, in the hospital context, you know, you give patient information to your doctor, expecting that your doctor is going to use that to help further your patient care, not expecting that they're going to sell it to a pharmaceutical company who would then advertise about whatever your problems are to you. Um, that would obviously be a HIPAA problem. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing, you know, doesn't really happen in the hospital context, but it does happen all the time outside of the hospital context where you're giving information to a company for one purpose and they're turning around and selling it or using it for some other purpose that isn't, you know, letting somebody steal it, but is actually sort of using it to monetize it in some way. And the reality is, you know, the internet grew very rapidly into a place that was in part predicated on essentially mining people's privacy or these people's data for the purpose of making money before anyone really had a chance to say, wait, is this a good idea? Um, and a lot of, I think, what's been interesting in the evolution of privacy and security law over the course of the past, let's say, you know, couple decades, but certainly the last decade, is this issue that we're now trying to retrofit concepts of privacy and security onto a system that unfortunately grew without having really given that a lot of thought in the first place. 
And for my practice over the years, that's been, you know, I would say that's one of the two most interesting aspects. I'll get to the second one in a second, is sort of this idea that, you know, the landscape has evolved very rapidly about how we use people's data. Um, you know, in some examples of this, um, you know, maybe uh, are obvious if you're in the industry, but maybe not so much if you're not. Like, for a long time, we had a concept of certain types of things were considered public. For example, land records were public records. But the reality is they weren't really known to other people because they were extremely difficult to get. So if you, you could, in theory, go down to the courthouse and look up what somebody paid for their house and what their mortgage was going back 30 years. But people didn't do that very often because it was time consuming, expensive, and not that easy to do. Now, of course, you can do that in two seconds with Zillow. Um, and you can do it for every single house on the street and everyone you know. Um, I'm not sure that at the time that they made land records public, people really thought about the fact that like someday the searchability would become so easy and so public that, that it would now become easily known and instantly accessible to someone. So there's also those sorts of issues of stuff that like we've long considered to be public. Do we really still want them to be public in that way? And how easily do we want them to combine with other pieces of information about a person, which as we know, companies can now very easily collect on a massive scale and connect together people who, um, you know, in ways that, uh, that we never really thought about before. So the other thing that I think has been really interesting in my career is um, because I've worked outside the US in addition to being in the US is how very differently uh, different legal systems have approached this issue. Uh, I think it's possible we're actually beginning to converge again, but for a while we were definitely headed in very different directions, for example, here in the US and in Europe. I would say if you go back about maybe three or four years, the US was really focused and was an early mover on a focus on security. Um, and long before the rest of the world, in particular Europe, had thought about making any requirements about what companies did in the event of a breach, the US state by state um, had mandated in almost every state that if a company has a breach, they're gonna be responsible for telling people what information about them was lost. That idea came to the United States in the early 2000s um, and uh, started in California. It then spread and ultimately the 50th state, I think passed it a year or two ago. Um, it actually came to Europe much, much later. Um, and for a long time in Europe, there was no attention paid to that. When I worked on both sides of the Atlantic in the, uh, you know, the teens, it was clear that in the US, if a breach happened, people were much quicker to do something about it because they had legal obligations. In the UK and elsewhere in Europe, there was often an attitude of, there's nothing we can do about it. Let's close the breach so it doesn't keep happening. But I don't really want to go into deep detail about what happened or what was stolen, because what am I going to do about it anyway? Um, that totally changed when Europe introduced GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which was really not mostly aimed at security. It was mostly aimed at rethinking privacy and what responsibilities companies should have to those people whose data they collect, their customers or others. And as a side note, one of those requirements is to keep it secure. And that was 10 years after the US had started down the path of requiring disclosures around breaches. Europe now came to this idea, but came in ferociously, I would say, with a view towards really protecting privacy, something that the US law hadn't touched at all, really, other than HIPAA. Um, and outside the healthcare context, you know, you could do what you wanted with data you collected as long as you collected legally and you didn't lose it, more or less. So the, um, now that's beginning to change. We're seeing some changes in laws 
um, that are going to focus more on privacy here in the U.S. Um, it'll be interesting to see. It won't be exactly the same as the European model, but it's at least getting at some of the same ideas that until very recently were very foreign to our laws. So we're going to get um, towards the end of a discussion about kind of that those sorts of upcoming areas. But before we do, I think we would be remiss if we didn't take a minute to talk about where we are now in this very strange uh, Zoom meeting period of the pandemic. Um, so Adam, I wanted to actually start with you. Can you give me a sense since the pandemic started, which was, or at least the, the part of it that had us all locked up at home, which is really only five weeks ago, but feels like infinitely ago. Um, how have the kind of privacy and security issues come up since then? Uh, a lot more Zoom meetings, um, but uh, in a few different ways, I'd say. Um, so, so the first thing is that obviously the legal system, to a large extent, um, is shut down, and so to the extent that um, uh, a, you know a decent percentage of the work I'm doing, and I think a lot of the work out there, still fundamentally revolves revolves around legal work. So it's it's litigation or other things that relate to data privacy or cybersecurity that has ground to not, not a halt, but certainly slowed um, significantly. Um, it's you know one of the uh, you know I certainly work with clients who are very affected, um, uh, particular healthcare clients who are uh, limited in their ability to focus on um, these kinds of issues. I mean, they are always concerned about privacy and, and cybersecurity, but it's, it's you know, having to take a back seat now to figuring out how to deal with COVID. And so, so sort of availability of, of both people and uh, infrastructure has impacted our ability to move forward with legal work, um, but in a sort of more less tangible way, I think that people are, you know, this is one of those times where people are thinking a little differently about privacy, um, not just because they're focused on other things, but other priorities are maybe more important. Like, for example, knowing where people have been is important now for tracking the virus. And um, you're starting to see uh, interest in using the, 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 you know, tracking abilities of cell phones and other things to figure out how the disease is spreading, how, whether people have come in contact with others, but there's a tension between that and the emphasis on privacy. And um, in, in, in sort of normal times, there certainly was growing greatly uh, increasing uh, interest, particularly in the U.S., around data privacy. It came a little bit earlier in Europe, as you mentioned, um, Seth, with GDPR, and there was concern, um, you know, going back to like Edward Snowden and the NSA surveillance, that raised concerns in the U.S., but I think far greater in Europe, far earlier. Um, and so Europe got into GDPR. U.S. was trailing behind that, but with um, Cambridge Analytica and concerns about Facebook, um, growing concern in the U.S. about privacy. But now all of a sudden, you know, we're in this pandemic and there's at least some thought that maybe privacy isn't quite as important when you're talking about people's lives being at stake. So maybe it's worth it for, uh, you know, for, for Google or Microsoft or whoever's doing it to be, you know, doing data analytics and tracking of people. And maybe that's more important than protecting people's location data. Now there's starting to be some pushback in the other direction on that. But um, I think from a legal perspective, that's going to be an interesting um, dialogue to see how that uh, develops over the next six months or so. Thanks. Peter? Well, I, 
I'll pick up on what Adam was saying. This, this, this fascinating tug of war is going on right now between privacy and security. Um, and, and, it's, and it can get pretty complex pretty quickly. So I'll give one example. Um, recently was working with uh, our employment lawyers and our compliance team and our physical security team on what we needed in order for people to get back to work. Well, okay, a lot of people do temperature checks. You get into questions of can you, are there going to be available checks for COVID antibodies or, or, for, um, or for somebody being positive for the virus? It then raises the question of, okay, you put out guidance on, on sort of what your rules are gonna to be to get back to work. How much of that are you entitled to? How much of that do you actually even want to have? Is it going to make a difference to have it? Um, similarly, there are governments like the Chinese government that have the red, yellow, green app, everyone's required to use them. But there are other governments like India, where we have a very large employee population that have apps that do massive amounts of geolocation and other tracking and tracing, which can be very helpful for the disease, um, only required for government employees. Do individual corporations want to jump on the bandwagon and say, you must use this app? Do we want to stand behind the government's privacy practices? Do we actually want to vet the government's privacy practices? Do we want to be in a place of saying to people, in order to work here, you may have to give up some of your privacy to us, to the government, to others. And, and these questions are um, probably as complex in, in a lot of social and sociological ways as the questions of whether to reopen the economy. Um, do you let somebody back into the office if they haven't given you this information? If you do take this information in, if you do take this information in, where do you store it? To whom do you give access? Do you give the access to the office manager, the person at the front desk, the most senior person in the office, everybody in HR, the person's manager? Um, you know, my, my hope and inclination all along has been let's not collect it um, because if there are going to be security issues and issues of return to work, hopefully there are ways of doing it without creating additional privacy risks along the way um, and privacy challenges. Um, but, but, but these questions are coming up every day now. The one other thing I'll say that I find really interesting, and, and, and a lot of people don't think of it in the discussion of COVID and privacy, is you know, NIST has come out with a special publication and a series of blogs and webinars around work from home and the privacy and security implications of work from home. And it is really interesting to see that after all the work that they've done, they've actually been able to boil their privacy and security advice down to like three bullet items. Item number one, do not use the same meeting ID for, for many successive meetings, right? So it all goes to show this is a very complex area. There's a lot going on. But when you boil it down, boil it down, boil it down, a lot of it comes back to basic principles of what are you collecting, how are you using it, to whom are you giving access, how are you protecting it, how long are you holding on to it, where is it moving, right? And that's consistent across this whole area. I guess to, to go back to where I began, I think the big thing that's different now 
is that these issues have such, the decisions on these issues have such massive implications for the way we all interact with, uh, with the workplace. Peter, that's, that's a really good point. One thing I, I will pick up on is you were talking about how you, uh, you know, really need to think about how you're going to reintroduce the workplace. And Adam mentioned, you know, potentially using technology to track people. I think one of the concerns that uh, at least I have, I, I would think that, that the rest of the panelists may share, I'll be, you know, feel free to weigh in on that, is it's very easy in this moment when we're involved in, you know, this unprecedented event to say like, wow, we should use technology to claw us out of this. And that is unquestionably something we're gonna to need to do in some form or another. But it also seems likely that whatever it is that we start allowing now will become the norm and will end up slowly creeping into other things. So it's gonna be very, it's, it's easy to say, we should use tracking because we have a pandemic and we need to know where people are so we can do contact tracing. It's a small hop, skip and a jump from that into using it for some other purpose that we may not like nearly as much. And, you know, there's no way that the privacy world is going to be able to stand, uh, you know, to stop that train, or even that we should. But I do think that one of our jobs is to make sure people are at least a little focused on that problem, because what well, decisions we make now will still be here after the pandemic is not. Because the data doesn't necessarily go away. Right. And the practices don't necessarily go away. That's right. Yeah. Krieta, can you weigh in? Um, uh, on that specific point or going back to the, the original question? Uh, going, well, going back to the original question, but okay. of course, feel free to weigh in on the specific point also. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the tracking and the contract, contact tracing, those questions I think will be really interesting, when, certainly when you talk about um, institutions like hospitals that really want to be cognizant of, you know, people coming in who might be bringing um, viruses uh, into what is a very, very sensitive patient population. Um, and I think that we've, I, I probably can't speak too much to it at this stage, it's a conversation that we've just really started to have. But I think the way that you and, and Peter framed it is really interesting. And I think it'll be a really interesting discussion to start having in the healthcare context, because there's an additional layer of, you know, the balancing act that Adam was referring to, like, when do we when when do we say it's it's more ways made it more in favor of you know public health public benefit versus the individual privacy needs and how do you balance that in an institution that really does have to think primarily about um, the the patients that they're serving and and the safety of those patients while they're on site um, which is going back to your original question. I think Adam touched on a real a few of you know the issues that we've been struggling with at the hospital very very well. Um, you know that almost everything else has taken a back seat to addressing the impact of COVID um, on patients who might be positive for the virus and who just need um, urgently need care and treatment. Um, and so the questions about Privacy, they haven't gone away, but I think that the shift in issues that we've seen has been very, very interesting um, and sort of unexpected for us. Um, just one example is, you know, right after the national emergency was declared, the Department of Health and Human Services, which regulates HIPAA, um, issued a few notifications about relaxing some rules. They indicated that specifically they would relax certain enforcement around practices. And of course, everybody in the healthcare community saw that 
And at that moment, everyone becomes a lawyer and expert and say, well, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to worry about distributing the NPP. And, and so the privacy and information security team had to you know, pump the brakes and say, wait a minute, that's not what they're saying. Um, you have to think about the rules. It, they've, they've been relaxed, but that doesn't mean that these issues are going away. So it's a very specific example. One of the notices was about you know, enforcement discretion for using various telehealth tools. And so people were asking, can I just use my Android phone? Can I use XYZ Google tool to communicate with patients? Um, you know, behind that, you still need to have a business associate agreement, which is an agreement that covered entities have to have in place with service providers who are gonna have access to uh, protected health information. You still need to have those agreements in place with the tool providers. So it's not just putting, putting aside the rules that have been in place for you know, 20 plus years because of COVID, is figuring out a way to strike a balance between the fact that HHS is, is relaxing some very stiff requirements and being able to provide service, but still in a compliant way. Um, so that's been a really interesting issue that we've grappled with on the privacy side. And another issue that, that Adam sort of mentioned was, you know, this question about, you know, disclosures and when something can be disclosed about patients, individuals, given the national emergency? What are the parameters for permissible disclosure for public health reporting? Or if it's something that's a serious or imminent threat to health and safety, which are two exceptions that fall under the privacy rule. Um, there's been some confusion amongst the, you know, the staff on, on those points. And you know, if someone wants to come up, comes up with a strategy around contact tracing or testing and testing employees or testing patients, and the default answer or the reason why they want to be able to do it is because they think, oh, it's for public health purposes. That's not really how that's defined under HIPAA. Um, and you have to always go back to whether or not it's, it's minimum necessary, if it's something that needs to happen in order to provide care, um, appropriately provide care. So the, the issues that have come up for us around COVID-19 and where you know, the questions about privacy in particular have come up have been very interesting and there are certainly things that we continue to grapple with. Um, on top of that, there are the questions, just going back to the use of the various tools um, in the context of telemedicine. We uh, have been really trying to make sure that the options available to providers, because it's not like you're in a position as a cancer provider to say, you know, come back in six months when we can see you. Your cancer is not gonna wait for someone, for, for, for COVID-19, for this crisis to go away. So we really have had to think about in different tools that we could use to provide care in the interim. But you know, with using Zoom as an example, what are the strategies that you put in place to make sure that those the tool is private and secure? You know, using waiting rooms is you know as Peter was mentioning, not reusing the same meeting ID over and over, um, using password protection, you know, disabling the recording functions. All these things came up, you know, sort of haphazardly as as the different tool options were being proposed. And so um, privacy, um, privacy security discussions were, were coming in along the way as we tried to address the concerns that started coming up with, with the various types of remote, remote service providers. So those have been the, the kind of the most interesting privacy questions that have come up recently, but I'm sure as this drags on, there'll be some other ones. Thank you, Kriya. So, um, the kind of last question that we want to get to before we uh, we get to questions, um, and if you do have questions, you should give them to us in the Q and A section, um, and uh, we'll try to get to them. But um, the last question is, 
you know, this is a very rapidly evolving field, as we've discussed. And, uh, you know, I'd be curious for each of you to talk a little bit about what do you see coming down the pike other than COVID, post-COVID? Like, what do you see coming down the pike in the privacy and security area that's different from, from what we've dealt with in the past, uh, you know, couple of years? Triada, why don't we start with you? Um, so uh, pre-COVID, we had started to really struggle with questions around big data and access to big data. Um, and, you know, medical data can be very valuable from an analytical benefit perspective because so much is collected about a person over the, you know, the course of their lives. And this has certainly been a struggle from the research perspective, you know, where we might have consent um, for a particular research project um, and some, somehow that research project gets spun into some kind of secondary research project. You know, it raises questions about you know, issues of internal versus external uses of data, which would, you know, have to be de-identified if you're talking about um, sharing outside of the institution in that way. Um, but these are some questions that, you know, people on our, our side are really struggling with, um, how, what data can be used and um, for these types of big data um, projects that really do have the potential to innovate um, around um, care and treatment of, of patients but being able to strike a balance between that and, and, and rights to uh, maintain medical privacy. Um, and it's ticked up um, even more interestingly when you think about genomics. Um, the common rule, which is a, um, a regulation that um, it applies in the, in the research context, um, has indicated that genetic data can never be considered de-identified. But personalized medicine, which uses genomic information um, to try to come up with treatment ideas, is so important, particularly when you think about cancer therapies in the future. So there has to be some discussions around balancing the limitations on the use of genomic data while furthering important research. So um, those are questions that our, our, our researchers and investigators have really started to have and, and started to incorporate you know, discussions with ethics. Um, and legal um, to, to participate and try to find you know, reasonable solutions to those problems. But I think um, COVID has changed um, many conversations around telemedicine as well. And so post-COVID, I think when we are on the other end of, of this crisis, we're probably going to start having more discussions around data privacy and telemedicine. Um, you know, primarily those issues about um, come up when we talk about telemedicine, people think classically about reimbursement issues and licensure, but data privacy is definitely going to be a factor when we start looking at various programs and how those could be offered to, um, to patients who might live outside of our immediate area and other states and other countries, um, and how we can use various tools for telemedicine um, in a way to provide remote second opinions and other services, but still complying with the rules that might be in place, particularly when you talk about international programs around data privacy and security. So you mentioned GDPR. I mean, how, how it, is there, what's the potential for being able to, to incorporate telemedicine more and more into a hospital's practice when, you know, there might be restrictions on someone's ability to transfer their medical records from their, 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 their home, from their residence. Um, so I think those issues are, are going to start creeping up more and more as we you know, proceed over the next few months. Thanks. Adam? 
So uh, I guess three things I mentioned, I think we're gonna see coming up uh, in the future. One um, is very clearly on a lot of people's radar screen, which is a US federal data privacy legislation. Um, you know, it's not certain that it's gonna happen at all, but it seems likely lots of, you know, industry generally thinks it's necessary having 50 different state laws um, makes no sense. Having states leapfrog over each other to, to enact uh, regulations that everybody's got to figure out how to comply with uh, isn't useful. Having Europe um, really kind of control the playing field um, isn't something the U.S. is going to ultimately um, go along with indefinitely. So I think we'll see it. I don't think we'll see it this year. In fact, now I'm certain we're not going to see it this year. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe in 2021 or 22, I think we'll probably see that. That, that will be a game changer. Um, two on the cybersecurity side are, um, uh, you know, we've seen dramatic increase in the last uh, five to eight years in nation state cybersecurity threats. Um, that's going to continue and expand. Um, it's really, you know, we worry about a handful of, uh, not even a handful, really four countries right now. Um, and, uh, you know, with, with uh, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, I think that number is going to expand and their capabilities are going to expand and that's going to be a growing problem. Um, and then finally, the last thing I would flag is what we haven't really seen at all, um, but I think we will at some point, is cyber terrorism. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, that's coming and could have impact on security, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, things like infrastructure, electricity grids, water um, supply, uh, you know, people talk about it as a, as a concern, um, but I think we may see it at some point in the next few years. Thanks, Peter. So I, I, I'll say Creta and, and Adam laid out an incredible array of important issues around um, use of data, combinations of data, reuse of data, de-identification, what's going to be the basis of a federal privacy law? Are we really going to lean back into notice and consent, which is the beast that got us to the point where we needed a federal privacy law in the first place? Maybe that's a bit of editorializing, but I think that's a discussion that we're still in the midst of having happening in the United States. I, I, I'll raise one other vantage point on this that I think is going to be um, perhaps interesting over the next couple of years. Data is becoming more valuable. It is becoming a bigger driver of our economy. And with that, questions of policy take on greater significance. So what we include in a privacy law today is not going to look like the 1995 data privacy directive or like the 2003 shine the light laws. Now it's going to be about how can you use data, reuse data, with whom can you share, for what purpose, what are sensitive uses and not, and it's very much more focused on, um, you know, our, our mobile devices and what they can do. Um, but, but the other, and sort of an advertisement for getting into this field is, as data becomes more valuable, we start to see companies advertising themselves on the basis of how they protect privacy. When that happens, Privacy is not just a back office function. We become part of the discussion among the executive leadership teams and the boards of our companies, not just because the areas legally are important, but because they're so core and central to the trust that we create with employees, partners, customers. Um, and so I think that 
for all the reasons that Adam and Krieta said, the legal issues are going to get more complicated, but I think that the roles that, that we and our community play are going to get bigger because of the importance of this area to the trust equation and business going forward. Great. So um, we're now into our question time. Uh, we have two questions so far. Um, the first one was actually, uh, so it is, uh, how are EU and US laws converging? Are we playing catch up? Uh, so that uh, was actually probably the area that I was going to answer to this last question of sort of what are we seeing in the future? Um, so yes, the answer is we're playing catch up in a certain way. Um, I think the way the laws are converging is probably less uh, at the moment in the actual practice of how you abide by them, but more in the underlying theory, right? Which is that we, the US basically started this discussion with a discussion which might have been framed as what should companies do to protect security, right? It wasn't really about the individual, except that the individual was kind of a distant victim of what the company might or might not be doing. Europe started the discussion the other way, which is what are the rights of individuals over the data that other people have about them? It was very focused on the individual and it was in this language of rights, which we reserve for you know, more constitutionally based issues. Um, I think that we are slowly beginning to see a convergence towards that question of looking at it from the individual's perspective. So if we look at the law that was recently passed uh, in California, the California Consumer Protection Act, the CCPA, you know, it starts to look at this from what are the rights of the consumer? Um, and not just sort of what is a company supposed to do? Obviously it gets to what a company is supposed to do, but it starts with the consumer and then gets to the company. And I think we're going to see uh, more uh, trending laws trending in that direction and looking at it from, you know, what are our rights? And that's important because it turns out that a lot of times companies have a lot of data about us when we're not actually their consumers. Like, for example, Equifax, with whom essentially none of us have a consumer relationship, and yet they know almost everything about all of us. Um, so we're their product, not their customer. And that's, uh, you know, an important uh, issue. So we got one last question. Oh no, now we have a bunch of questions. Well, we only have uh, one minute because I think we didn't actually take the advice that uh, the NIST gave to not reuse a meeting ID and this is about to become a different meeting. Um, but uh, in terms of suggestions to young associates, I think we'll wrap up with that. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Peter, you wanna give that a shot? What do you suggest for young lawyers thinking of uh, going into this? So I'll, I'll give it a quick shot. Um, there has never been a better time to get into the field. Um, you, you, you know, you have on the screen um, two partners leading major practices in this area. Um, we have a, a phenomenal array of great uh, law firm privacy practices um, in Boston now, and now a number of in-house privacy practices, privacy and security practices, all of which are great um, places to learn. I'll also suggest that the AG's office is second to none in this area. Um, as, as both of you, uh, Seth and Adam, described, the US Attorney's Office is deep in it. So there is no shortage of opportunity. And for those of you who are saying, well, I may wanna do it, but I may wanna dip a toe and see what there is, the skills are very transferable because it's increasingly about data and systems and the way we're increasingly living online. All right, great. Uh, I think uh, with that, uh, I think we're actually obligated to uh, wrap things up. So I just want to thank all of the panelists um, and all the participants. We really appreciate 
joining us uh, through this uh, pandemic times and uh, everyone stay healthy and safe. And we hope to see you in person when we're allowed to do that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys.